what's your framework? When you get up in the morning, you look at your life. What do you use to remind yourself who you are, what you're trying to do, and what's in the way of that? Or I could say it differently. What story do you tell yourself about who you are? Framework is a cool word. It's mitzmah in the Hebrew. It covers a lot of ground. The word worldview is maybe more popular these days. And that's what I'm trying to do to you, St. Paul Lutheran Church. I'm trying to construct a framework around your soul based upon the symbolism of the Bible, not because the Bible's a symbol, but because the Bible's more real than everything else. And so when it defines the framework through which you see the world, what happens is you start to see much more clearly. You start to see not only with your eyes, which is how most people see, but also with your ears. You start to hear what God says, and then you see it. It was there all along, but you couldn't see it till you heard it. Building a framework, building an ark. That's how you would build an ark. You're not going to build a giant boat without constructing a framework, right? And to do that, you'd need to first design that framework. You call that a schematic, right? Same word. You'd have to scheme into the future to build the thing that you believe is good. Well, that's what I'm doing now to you. I think you're the thing I'm supposed to build. I'm supposed to build you as a people in confidence that you're here to build your house, your neighborhood, and your entire life in the name of Jesus Christ. With the certainty that you are the box, the ark, the boat that God himself is building. I'm not really building you. I just get to stand here and say the words that God uses to build you as his ark as his temple, his tabernacle, the place he dwells. He doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands, but now we know he's writing his word upon your heart. He's entering you by his Holy Spirit. He's regenerating and renewing you into new life. And what is more, his very flesh and blood, his very body is going to enter into you to be kept in the midst of the raging storms of this age. God's building you as his ark. And I want to inspire you with that. I had one of you, an excellent member, a friend, uh, say after the first service, I'm just not sure what to do with the pieces. It was good, it was good. Just what do I do with the pieces? And I got real excited as I thought about that. I said, don't do anything. It's a story that's going to move you whether you like it or not. But what you can begin to do is now ask the question, how does the assumptions I carry all the time line up with what the Bible is telling me is true? And do I need to start dismantling some of my framework that I assume is true because it's not? And to give you the best example of this, we're going to start at the back of today's story. Not the best, a good example of this. The back of today's story, a part I didn't read, uh, the last section before they get off the ark. This is going to start on page six of your pew Bible and Genesis chapter eight, uh, verse Uh, six and following. So we heard red all the way up to the water and the mountains and the mountaintops being seen. We're going to come back and talk about that a little bit. Um, But we're just going to start with this this last part here before they get off the ark. I'm going to read it to you here. Eight, six through 14. 
It says, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him, excuse me, to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And we'll pick up with the next part next week. But here's where we're going to start us this morning. All right, framework, your understanding. Uh, what's going on with the raven and the dove? Have you ever heard a pastor talk about the raven and the dove and what they mean? Anybody? You don't have to tell me what, but have you? Nobody. Okay. I've heard a few. I went and did some looking because I, I don't know. I've just heard people kind of say things, right? And we all, you assume the dove's good and the raven's bad, right? Like that's kind of just in the story. Like the dove's a happy bird and the raven's a, a sad bird. Like we kind of have that, right? But why? And then what's Noah doing when he does this? Uh, let's start with this question. Does Noah send out a raven and a dove together and then a dove? Or does he send out a raven and then a dove and then the dove? I had always assumed raven, then dove, then dove. Three times, three weeks. But would you know, Luther, when he preached on this, said, you can't believe that. He had to send out the raven and the dove together first and then the dove later. I thought, well, I guess I have to believe that. Luther said so. I kept reading. I read in another commentary, Kyle and Dale, it's one of my favorite. They said, you can't believe that. It has to be three weeks. I can take you through the text and I can, I can show you. Well, you know, I don't know. But the more that I look at that, I start to ask, so what is going on? And then here's where it really hit me. Is Noah stupid? Does he think the raven's going to come back? Is he that dumb? He got all these animals in a boat for a year, kept them alive, but he doesn't know what a raven is? That's the one that makes me think he sent them out together because he had a different purpose for each of them. And what was that purpose? Well, I'm not sure I know. <laughs> yeah? I'm going to share with you kind of what I found, though. There's some fascinating stuff. The raven is a, um, a bird you don't expect in Hebrew thought. Uh, sadly, by the way, confession here, I went excitedly to my wonderful book on Hebrew zoology. It has all these animals and the Hebrew words and what they mean and how they're connected and why they are what they are. Uh, and I was so excited to look up raven and dove, and wouldn't you know, birds aren't part of the book. <laughs> hmm. But it did have a section on the raven, because the raven is never alone in ancient Israel. Okay, Now, ancient Israel, think of where the Holy Land is now, 
between Africa and Asia and Europe. It's the center of the old world physically. And at the time of Noah, for sure, every animal in the world is there. They get off the ark. <laughs> and then from there, uh, when you get down to like David's time, like every animal in the world kind of is there still. Leopards, you know, uh, things like that. They're not there anymore. We've, we've killed these things. But so uh, the raven was there. And the raven in this ancient world where you had lions and tigers and bears, oh my, uh, all together, uh, the raven was never alone. The raven was always with the wolf. And the wolf is always with the raven. So much so that in Judges 7.25, you even have the story of the wolf and the raven. You just don't quite catch it because it's the story of Oreb and Zeb, wolf and raven. Uh, and they are the kings of Midian who Gideon has their heads cut off. Uh, so when the Midianites are oppressing the Israelites for 40 years, and Gideon has to like thresh his wheat in a wine press to hide it because they're so tyrannical and wicked. The men who rule are wicked. Their names are Wolf and Raven. The house of Wolf and Raven, they, they conquer Israel, right? And this is connected to the actual history that wolves and ravens are a symbiotic animal in ancient Israel, where it makes sense for the raven to follow the wolf, right? Because the wolf's going to kill something. The wolf's going to eat most of it, the insides. The wolf's going to leave. And the raven's like, rock on, right? Feast. Here we go, dinner. But the raven's smart. And the raven is smart enough to figure out the wolf is a pack animal. And the raven is smart enough to join the pack. So you find ravens with wolves doing things like alerting them to danger, finding prey for them, leading them to the prey. An actual symbiotic relationship between these two creatures, which, remember last week, the wolf is one of five evil creatures in the Old Testament, right? Lion, bear, leopard, wolf, serpent. Why are they evil? They're dangerous to mankind. That's why, right? They're not like morally evil, but they become symbols of that. The serpent most definitely, right? Um, so uh, the wolf is there as this dangerous creature, but then there's this other thing that connects the wolf to the raven too, um, which is that they both tend to be out at dusk, at night. And so if you really want to translate the word raven, um, orev, it means coming of night. So the birds, the coming of night, that's what they called it, right? And then Ze'ev, Zeb, it doesn't mean this literally, but if you compare the bird, you know, night bringer, the raven, well, then the wolf is night stalker, right? And together, uh, the, the darkness descends. And this is the symbolism of these two animals together. And then Noah has to know this. That's my contention. He has to know this. Like, forget judges. He didn't have judges yet, but he has to know about how wolves and ravens work together and are symbiotic to each other. And so again, what's he saying What's he trying to find with this raven? What's he think this raven's going to do? More things about ravens just for the fun. It's clearly a wild bird. You can't make homing ravens. Right? You can make homing doves. Um, uh, connected to nightfall, it brings no fruit. Okay. Then the dove is like a completely different beast. So whereas the raven has no problem going out and landing on a filthy carcass in a mucky pile, a dove will not go where it's wet. It wants dryness. It seeks dryness. Uh, a dove does not eat flesh. It eats grains. A completely different kind of animal in one sense. And of course, the dove is domesticatable. Right? You can get your homing dove. So when he, I think when Noah lets the dove out, he expects the dove to come back. 
That's what you do with pigeons. He's going to send out one. What's he doing with the raven is what I still am not sure, other than he expects the raven to not come back. And this is where in the text, I think this is what, the raven doesn't work in this way. He's supposed to go out and not come back. He's just going to disappear. But instead, he flies about and lands on the ark for several more weeks. He won't come back to Noah. He won't go inside, but he's got nowhere else to go. Whereas the, the dove comes back, right? And then the dove comes back. He sends out the dove again. And we have the second major part of this story symbolism was now when the dove comes back, it doesn't come empty empty mouthed. Uh, it comes with this olive sprig or olive branch, this shoot. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I couldn't find, like, <laughs> you know, do doves pluck the size of branch that an olive branch would be to make their, uh, to make their nests? Like, is this what a dove would do? Or is this actually a miracle, right? Like carrying a coconut under the left guided dorsal feather or something. Anybody? Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, how'd the dove do this? I, I don't know. Is it, is it normal? I don't know. But I do know it's chock full of symbolism. So let me say this uh, kind of on the numbers and symbolism thing, though. I believe that the numbers in the Bible carry symbolic meanings, not because they aren't actual numbers, but because the actual numbers, like the 40 years and the 150 days, those real events that happened are natural in God's mind. Like God did that. And so those numbers mean what happened. And they do down to this day. And I'm going to try to show you that with the number 40 here before we're done this morning. Um, uh, so, uh, recollect my thought there on where the numbers are going to take us. Uh, the dove. Um, so the dove is being sent out again uh, as a symbol, right? The numbers are a symbol. The dove is a symbol, but it's also real. So in all that I'm saying today, please, no one walk away and say, Pastor Fisk doesn't think this really happened. It all really happened, and now it means more than just that it happened. Let me say that a different way. Design is the sign of significance, all right? Design, God's intention, the sign, the thing that happens, the significance, what it means, right? So the number is the sign, it's what happened, but what does it mean, right? And the same is true with the, the dove. The dove is a sign, but what does it mean? Right? And that's connected, I think, especially now to the olive shoot that comes back because olives are the thing where in your framework as an American, you just don't think about olives the way that everybody else before petroleum thought about olives. Because olives are where you get light until electricity, right? Or kerosene, I suppose, right? Uh, in the ancient world, olives are fuel before they're food. Then they're also food. And as food, they're the kind of food that's the hardest to get in nature. Healthy fat. Olives are like better than a gold mine. The fact that this thing comes back with an olive branch, they had to be dancing on the ark. Oh my gosh, we're going to get off and we're going to have olives right here? Thank you, Jesus. Big moment. Yeah. But there's, there's more, right? So the olive is fuel. Fuel for what? For light. So now you've got the dove bringing light with it back into the darkness of the ark. Yeah. Under the darkness of the flood. And then you got, you got more. And that if you keep going forward in the, New or in the Old Testament, 
you'll find the idea of a sprig or a shoot or a branch comes up again, just like the kind of barren birth narrative, right? Uh, so these sprigs and branches, unexpected new growth of life, oh man, well, a shoot shall come up from the stump of Jesse and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So, so this idea of the branch in the dove's mouth, you just have to see this as a sign of Jesus and the Holy Spirit entering the body of mankind through this ark. But then again, the flood has washed the world of evil. Peter tied that all to baptism too, which the Holy Spirit, of course, is tied to. You see the layers and how the symbols are, are less like an, an outline to memorize and answer test questions about and more about just a beautiful picture that surrounds you as an identity. Right? That all of these are your images. That the Holy Spirit, like unto a dove, has flown from the chaos to you in God's name with uh, the truth of Jesus Christ in his mouth. So that now, even though you're still stuck in a box waiting for the storm to pass, because this life ain't over yet, you have a different kind of hope than everybody else does. You've got a fuel nobody else knows about. You have the name of Jesus Christ. You have the God who is man, and he is yours. Better still, he remembers you. So, left turn. That was 15 minutes on the dove and the raven. Left turn now to chapter 8, verse 1. Still on page 6, but if you want to go there, here's kind of the, the major thing I want you to take away today. Right? You're getting a little bit of a different sermon than first service. Feel free to go look that up at sp815.org to get more on some of the other stuff that we're going to skip. But... This is the same for everybody. Romans or Romans 8. That's a good verse 2, Romans 8, 1. But Genesis 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock. We're going to talk about those in a second. But first, God remembered Noah. Like in your mind, at least, circle that word remembered. Put it in your head as so much more than just a little tiny thought, Right? This isn't just like, oh, I should send him a card. This word remembered uh, is powerful in Hebrew. It does a lot of different work. Um, it does mean, like literally, to remember, which is kind of a strange idea. Like, how do you define remember? I'm going to try. It's when you think a thought again. Yeah? So to remember is to have the same thought twice. So in that sense, to remember, remember does just mean to think. And in Hebrew... It can just mean that, to think. Um, but it can also mean to think about it. So now you're going to have the same thought go once, twice, three times. That's called meditation or contemplation. So it's that word too. But then those are all hearing things, right? Or, or inside your head kind of things. I'm, I heard words. I remember the words. I think about the words. But the word also means to mention, to declare, to recite, to invoke, to commemorate, or to confess. So this kind of remembrance that God's going to do to Noah isn't just thinking about him. It also involves saying stuff to him. And more than that, the word then also means doing stuff. Because the doing that's going to happen in the remembrance is creating a memorial these things happen all through the Old Testament. Sometimes they're called covenants, a little different. But, you know, I raise my Ebenezer. Have you ever, you ever come to that one of the hymn verse? 
Here I raise my Ebenezer. And you're like, I don't even know. My um, tangent, but my uh, my best friend as a as a child had a uh, um, a cocker spaniel named Ebenezer, and I I really every time we sang the song, it was all that went through my head. I had no other reference point. So well, Ebenezer is a big rock that gets set up in the Book of Judges as a zakar, as a, a remembrance, as a memorial, as this thing we did. So when we see it in the future, we'll remember what we're gonna do. That's this idea of memorial and remembrance. Why do we have memorials for various wars here in Rockford? What's the point of this? It's to remember. But it's not just to remember. It's not just to call to mind. It's also to call to action. It's to inspire something forward. Now I want you to take all that. And again, God remembered Noah. He called himself to action on Noah's behalf looking on him with thoughts he had had before and then planning to act on those thoughts now and what comes next, but the waters recede from the earth. God completes the salvation. We're going to come back to remember because I want you to know that God remembers you too. But let's take a moment to, to slip into this word 40 for a moment again as well, we just saw it, so I'm not going to go back and try to uh, try to read it again. Uh, yeah, so it it shows up several times in the text: forty days, forty nights for the rain. And what I want to do now is uh, try to tie that word forty to what we just talked about about God's desire to remember in mercy by a longer discussion of the meaning of numbers as symbols uh, in the Bible, and. This starts with what I said already, that when things happen in order in the Bible, God planned that, and then meaning, significance comes out of that. This starts in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where on the seventh day God rested, and so he blessed it and called it holy, the seventh day. Well, through the rest of the Bible, every time it has the word weak, It doesn't have the word week. It has the word seven. Seven is just the way they talk about the week. It's so built into reality. You don't even think about it, but it's still there today. There's seven days in your week because God made it that way. And then this is the number of God's holy touch, right? The seven. Well, okay, 40 is a whole different place. Now, 40 develops over the course of, uh, of the Bible as the number of the earth or the number of creation. And uh, there's a number of ways that, that I can prove this. Um, uh, uh, let me see here. I want to see if I have a note on something. There it is. Um, yeah. We think about four as related to the earth without realizing we do it all the time. There are how many seasons? Four. There are how many directions on your compass? Four. How many phases of the moon? Four again, how many cherubim representing creation gathered around the throne of God? Four, how many beasts of Daniel representing tyrannical governments over the history of mankind? Four, you know, it keeps showing up. How many men in the furnace? Ah, Look, I see four men down there. Who's that other one like a son of God, right? So four uh, is starts. The first place it shows up is the fourth day. Let's skip that. The second place it shows up is in Eden. And Eden is the garden at the center of the entire world, God's green earth that he had made. 
And in this mysterious time before the flood, the earth was not watered by rain. And ah, it's hard to imagine, right? But, but that's, that's what it says. The earth is watered instead by four rivers. Four rivers that meet at a head, a single river in Eden that breaks out and goes to all parts of the earth. Of course, it's going to split off with tributaries as it goes, right? And it waters the entire earth. But that four right there of the whole earth kind of sets the tone for four for the rest of the Bible. Now, it's in the fourth day as well if you go looking. All right. So, well, 40, 40 days is the number four and then the number number 10 multiplied by each other. Um, and uh, that then gives us the rest of sort of the 40 meaning. The first part is it's for the whole earth, right? Worldwide flood. Look at that. 40 days, whole earth right there. Yeah. And then you have 10. 10 is the number of God's completion, right? Seven's complete in a holy touch kind of way. Ten's complete in a iron law kind of way. And you know this from the most clear example in the Bible of the number 10, the Ten Commandments, which are the 10 perfect resolutions of God's law, the 10 things that you can do for which you deserve to be punished by your neighbors, Ten Commandments, that kind of thing. Um, It is then 10, uh, the number of God's powerful governance, his sword, the nature that he will not let break. So then 40 days, 40 nights is all the earth and God's governance. What's he doing? He's bringing the power of the sword upon mankind. Now, if you're good with your uh, arithmetic, you can be like a pastor. The only way to get by, you don't only get to 40 by multiplying 4 and 10. You can get to 40 a different way, right? 8 and 5. The cool thing about numbers in the Bible is those work out pretty cool too. 8 is the number of resurrection, or 8 people saved in the ark. You got that one? Peter just talked about that. Number of salvation through the 40. Uh, 5, this is like the bad number. Everyone thinks it's 666. Yeah, there's problems with 666. And wouldn't you know, 42 is actually the worst number in the whole Bible. Uh, but uh, five causes all sorts of problems. And you know this. Uh, anytime you have, well, you, do you ever have five plates in a package? Uh, no, why? Because it would cause all sorts of problems. It's much easier to have sets of four, right? We just know this. It just happens. Uh, but then in, in the Bible, this number gets assigned kind of a spiritual meaning of, of chaos that we see in how five doesn't always add up so well until you get to 10. And suddenly, when 10 locks down five with a pair, now, when the math was hard, right, with all the fives everywhere counting your change, now the tens, you're just going boop, boop, boop. Well, I can multiply by 10. Easy peasy, right? 10 is a powerful constrictor. Uh, eight then, resurrection, times is the five into the 40, the 10. You see how all this piles together now? 40 has, again, four, eight, 10, and um, five in it. All of this piles together into a meaning that can be summarized like this. 40 is the number of discipline, probation, revival, and jubilee. Things that you wouldn't normally as an American put together. Oh, we're going to have joy tonight? That means we're going to hurt now. 
That's not how we think. <laughs> that's not how we think. But that's how 40 works. Is God says, I want to give you joy. But first, I have to hurt you. Because it's the only way you're going to have joy. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and he's like, watch me die for you. Look, nothing makes sense. I'm your king now. I make sense. So, so Jesus owns the pain is the meaning of 40. And that when Jesus owns the pain, he doesn't waste it. He uses it for your good. And so probating you, putting you in a box for a floody storm to discipline you for a time is always with the result of revival and jubilee. The 40s in the Bible end with good news. They start hard. They have pain. And then they release into the final joy. Um, so, of course, the olive sprig, right? The rain stops. They get off. They're dancing on the olives. And they're making sacrifices. Rainbow, that's coming next week. Uh, but now, uh, let me give you where else you can take this. You want to take this number 40 and study it. Don't just assume Pastor Fisk knows. I read some books. I did my work, but like that doesn't mean I'm right. To know what 40 means, you take all the stories with 40s and you find their similarity and you'll find it and it'll be there. Here they are. Uh, you have the 40 days of rain for the flood. Uh, you have Moses is 40 years in Egypt. Then he is 40 years in Midian. And then he is 40 years in the desert. That's his 120 years of life. Yeah. In that midst, Moses is also on Mount Sinai twice, both for 40 days. He sends the spies into Canaan for 40 days. Uh, Elijah is on Mount Sinai for 40 days in the book of Kings. Uh, Jonah preaches in Nineveh for 40 days. They repent, if you recall. Uh, Ezekiel lies on his side as proof of a vision for 40 days. I can't imagine the bed source and how did he go to the bathroom? But still, it's a powerful story. Um, Christ and his temptation in the desert, summing all these old 40s up in one big moment where he faces the devil and comes out victorious, right? Probation unto Jubilee, 40. Resurrection to his ascension. He rises 40 days later. He's off, and now the Holy Spirit's going to get sent. Jubilee extraordinaire. You can also go look up the story of Othniel, the story of Barak, the story of Gideon, the story of David, the story of Solomon, Jeroboam II, fascinating little catalyst he is, Jehoash and Joash. All of those, the 40s in the Old Testament, and their singular theme is God's going to make it hurt so that later it's going to be amazing. That's the number. Huh? What do you do with that? Well, you know, don't believe you have a 40 like planned for you right now in God's life in your life, right? And don't go looking for like 40 on your lottery tickets. That's not how this works. Divination, trying to tell the future is evil. Trying to manipulate the future is evil. But what you can do is when you get to the story of the 40 days and 40 nights, and no one's, you go, oh, look, it's a story about how God's going to hurt. And then the result of the pain we see will be used to redeem us into joy. And then you can say, that's what happens every day of my life. That my life brings me hurt, and God in Jesus Christ redeems it into joy. So my life's just like Noah. Your life's just like Noah. And just like Noah, we're here to build the ark. Which ark? The body that believes in Christ. Huh? The family that believes in Christ. The congregation that believes in Christ. That sails together as his ark through the raging flood of the evils of our age. 
God remembered. The 40 is cool. The remembered is what is yours today. This is not here of old just for us to think, wouldn't it be nice if God treated us the way he treats Noah? It's here for you to believe that it is a fact that because you've been called by the Holy Spirit to confess the name of Jesus Christ, that God does look at you and treat you the way he treats Noah. He's not planning a worldwide flood of water at the moment. He's planning to destroy the earth by fire on a great last day. And he's told you which ark is going to sail through that. It's the body of Jesus himself. And he's promised you that you can take and eat in remembrance of him, the supper, which is his memorial to you. We didn't come up with the Lord's Supper to remember Jesus. He says, take and eat my memorial. And remember, it goes both ways then. This is both him calling to mind what he has done for you, him calling to mind for himself what he's doing for you as he does it. Take and eat is God saying, I remember you. I want you to build that into your heart so that you know every time you come to this ship, this ark, right? It is God remembering you in the midst of the flood, which these waters of chaos, I mean, I don't know. Are you watching the presidential debates that are already not happening? Not happening? Does it matter? I don't know what's going to come. But what I am confident of is that God is going to bless we who trust in him to provide for our faith and life together. I think this was how I said it to another one of you last night. There's a lot of things in the world right now that could go wrong. There's a lot of things that could collapse. You have federal government officials saying things like the grid might not work. I mean, have you heard that? Maybe not. It's not on the news. There's a lot of things that could go wrong right now. But you know what God has promised always endures? Congregations of a few people who gather around the scriptures to believe Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. It always endures. Huh? I mean, I, it, I've said this before to you. It's possible that persecution makes us flee. It's possible that they martyr some of us. They're not there yet. I don't know why we should assume they're there yet. I think we should just build our ark and trust that, that God knows exactly what he's doing. And for such a time as this, he's put you right here in these pews with these people to be on this ship. Which one of you is the giraffe? <laughs> Which one of you is the donkey? I'll be the baboon. We're all here together to get through it. And the promise of the Lord's Supper is that he's through it. He's through it. And he's pulling you through it together. All right. We have uh, 10 more minutes. That's all God remembered. I want to do a little bit, left turn, potpourri, on uh, 8 verse 4. We didn't cover this in the other service, and it's, it's kind of worth it for some fun. Why don't we look at the end of verse 3, too? At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So the 150 is kind of cool. 50 is the year of Jubilee. Like in Leviticus, every 50 years, it's a year of Jubilee. They are supposed to forgive all the debts and let the land rest for a year. Um, it's, I think, uh, surmised they never do this. Almost, they never do this. And so the exile is the Jubilee years crunched back. So God takes the Jubilees back. Since you're not going to be free, I'll make you be free. <laughs> uh, so 50 is the year of Jubilee. It's supposed to be a good number though, right? 10 has bound five into its order now and it works for us. And so we're free in Christ. 
And then you have the Jubilee 50 times three. Well, that's the Trinitarian number, right? So, so God's Jubilee, the rain stops. That's kind of fun. But now where we're really going is uh, the mountains of Ararat. So if you look on any map anywhere for Mount Ararat, you're going to find it on the plains of uh, what modern-day Turkey is. And what's there is one fairly large mountain and then a, a smaller mountain beside it, um, neither of them really in a range. They're, they're part of a range. All ranges kind of stretch. But if you drive to these mountains, it doesn't look like a mountain range. It looks like a mountain that you're getting closer to. Uh, this is where most people believe the Ark is. There have been lots and lots of expeditions to this place. One of the challenges with this place is that it's high enough there's whole parts of the mountain that you can only go for like small windows every year. And, you know, you're likely to die when you do anyway. So it's not like everyone's just running up there for vacation. There have been photos taken from, I know, you know, space and people make all sorts of claims. But um, I actually don't think the Ark's there. And I'm going to try to tell you why. There is another theory out there about where it could be. And it has as much possibility to it as being true as this first one does. I think it has more. And it largely has to do with this phrase, mountains of Ararat. So let's, let's look at it again so you can see it. Um, it. It doesn't say mountain, right? It says mountains. Uh, I lost the verse now, 8-4. Um, mountains of Ararat. Uh, one of the other pieces then, so you have mountains describing a mountain. That doesn't make sense to me. Why would you use the word plural to describe this one big mountain? Um, the other piece of this is that uh, in... In Hebrew, the vowels are kind of squishy. They don't always have to be there. In fact, ancient Hebrew didn't write the vowels at all. They still spoke them. But a lot of the words then that we see written, say in the book of Genesis, we're kind of guessing what the vowels are, especially if it's not a really clear word with a meaning, like a name of a place. So all you have is really three letters, R-R-T. There's probably an M, it's plural, R-R-T-M, okay? Those three letters, R-R-T-M, which could be Mount Ararat in Turkey, very well, R-R-T, there it is. Can you hear that? R-R-T, Ararat. Mount Ararat isn't named Mount Ararat until sometime after the birth of Christ. To the east, closer to Babylon, and closer to the Indus River Valley, the places where civilization that we can find actually starts, off the ark, <laughs> yeah? There's a whole other mountain range called the mountains of Urartu, RRT. The mountains of Urartu, it's northern Iran. And you can go look this up. There's a, there's a book I hope to have in the back. It's not there yet. You can read about how there are entire cultures of effectively, you know, gatherer shepherd peoples living at the foot of the mountains uh, who all believe the ark is in the mountains. They all believe it's there. And some of them will tell you stories of how when the weather's right, because it's, it's like the Himalayas again, it's off the Himalayas. Um, you, the same issue goes with you can't go up all the time and just check it out. But when the weather's right, you can get up in these mountains and you can find uh, areas where there are vines for grapes that grow that are as big as a tree, like a trunk, because they're so old. They've been there, you know, 3,000 years, because that's where Noah planted his vineyard when he got off the ark. And they tell you this down with their sheep and their goats in the, in the dirt street, right, where the people live nearby this. And there are Christians who have gone over and gone searching, and, and no one can find the ark there either. But I don't know. 
it makes sense to me uh, that that's where this story kind of completes, that Noah and his sons in this boat land somewhere in mountains between India and Babylon. And this is how you have Shem, Ham, and Japheth when they split ways and the Tower of Babel happens and all this. You know, the Japhethites, they all go to India and then north and up to Europe. And most of us are Japhethites. Uh, the Shemites, they stay right there in Babylon. Ham goes toward Africa, Egypt, really, to start. Uh-huh. So, you know, that whole way of just kind of knowing the history of the world through what the Bible says versus through kind of the standard, here's a bunch of dates and names, and we don't really believe stuff about of the old. This is where I want your framework to build more and more in what you assume to be true because the Bible says it. You know to be true because the Bible says it. Um, And so the ark did exist and does exist somewhere. And the value of believing the story of the mountains of Urartu is simply, again, to know that our God is the one who doesn't lie, who keeps his promises, whose word is clear. And so if we see a word and it says mountain Ararat, and we go over and we look and we can't find what God said happened there, we might be looking in the wrong place because the word doesn't lie. We might be misinterpreting the word because the word doesn't lie. And this, as your framework, is going to benefit you. No matter what, to trust that the scriptures have been written for your reading, your marking, your learning, your inwardly digestion, in Jesus Christ's name, as God remembering you today. So you're going to come up here in a moment and eat the Lord's Supper, and God's going to remember you and save you again. You're going to do it the rest of your life. But you don't get the supper every day. What you have every day is the book the book you can open and read out loud as God's remembering of you again. Yeah. That this is a powerful event that the Holy Spirit with his olive branch is flying into you and through you into the rest of creation. With three minutes left here, I'm going to glance at my notes and see if there's anything super cool that I can just throw in to finish it up and tie it together. I think I've hit... Almost everything except for the cool stuff about the windows of heaven and the firmament and all of that. Um, Yeah, we got all the rest of it. So, last thing. It's week two of three weeks to build the ark. First week, bad news. There's a flood. Be afraid. Believe. Second week. Dear God, what did you just do to us? It is what just happened. No, they all died. What's coming on this earth now? I don't know. Dear God, what did you do to us? 40 is always discipline unto joy next week. It's going to be a rainbow. And it's ours. In the name of Jesus. Amen.